1: welcome to new books in anthropology a podcast channel on the new books network i'm your host reagan Gillum. what have racial categories meant to publics in the united states how has anthropology shaped and been shaped by the politics of race these are a few questions that my guest today has been thinking about for a while in today's episode i'm talking with dr lee d baker the Mrs. A. Haymeyer Professor of Cultural Anthropology, African and African-American Studies, and Sociology at Duke University. Today's episode is special because it recognizes and celebrates the 25th anniversary of the publication of his book, From Savage to Negro, Anthropology and the Construction of Race, 1896 to 1954, by the University of California Press. During our conversation, we talk about Dr. Baker's intellectual foundations, how he came to write the book, his work doing public anthropology, Zora Neale Hurston, and more. I was so impressed by his experiences and generosity, and I enjoyed every bit of this conversation. I hope you do too. Thanks for listening. All right. So hello and welcome to the New Books in Anthropology podcast, Dr. Lee Baker.
0: Hey, thank you so much. I'm I'm really glad to be here. And we're going to call this session The Old Books in Anthropology.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Um, It's really an honor to have you on the podcast and to hear about your work and career. Your book is 25 years old. So congratulations. It's From Savage to Negro, Anthropology and the Construction of Race, 1896 to 1954. And so in, you know, referring to your book, Anthropology and the Construction of Race, I wanted to begin the conversation with this question of how you came to study anthropology.
0: Oh, how I came to study anthropology. Yes. Um, When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to... um, do a international exchange. And, um, in high school, we had a woman from Columbia stay with us for a year. And then when I, and I was like a freshman and, in, in, in high school. And by the time I got a senior, I was still in that network and I applied and I became an exchange student, um, as well. And I did it for just for the summer. And I was placed in Australia. And I thought I'd be like surfing in Sydney and like just hanging out on the beach, but I was placed with an Aboriginal family in 13 degrees South latitude in a small community called Broome. And it is on the, like the Northwest corner. There's not much out there, but because it sits close to Indonesia and Bali, um, The pearling industry had been there for many, many generations before white people even settled Australia. That whole northwest corner um, was a a, a mix of different cultures. But the aboriginal family I was um, with were very much professionals. They were middle class. They were running hospitals and clinics. But they were also part of that stolen generation where they were so-called half-caste aboriginals and they were taken out of their families and then um, it was their parents. So it would be, yeah, their parents were taken out of the families and raised in orphanages. So they were not part of the traditional Aboriginal communities. And so they, but because of racism in Australia, they were not um, sort of integrated into white society. So they were in betwixt in between. And to me, as an African-American seeing this in the height of the crack epidemic, remember this was the 80s, <laughs> um, that I, the Aboriginal people were like blowing their brains out by sniffing petrol and a lot of alcohol. And African Americans were blowing their brains out through crack. And I was like, what is going on with these democracies that believe that they are based on pillars of equality? but their people of color are just being destroyed. Like, and to me that was a question. Like, how do these democracies that believe in equality destroy the people that built these countries? And so then I come back, my mind is blown, and this is, you know, as a high school student, right? I go to Portland State and say, "I want to major in anthropology." I didn't even know what it was really, but I thought it would help me answer some of these questions about this this contradiction between you know, pillars of democracy and institutionalized racism. That I knew, but I didn't have the tools to sort of put that all together. And so I I enrolled in Anthropology 101 at my first semester as a first-year student at Portland State. And I also took Black Studies classes. And so it was really a transformational educational experience to have both Anthropology and we called it back then Black Studies. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. So that's really an interesting story. Um, And, and I guess this like leads to my next question. So you mentioned like Portland state and black studies. Um, And so I, you know, academics as, as everyone else has, have their own trajectories, lives and their own histories. And I wanted, wondered if you wanted to expand on this question of what places, spaces and people help to foster your own intellectual development.
0: Um. Yeah, I think, you know, we, when academics works well, we are in communities of learning and learning communities. I mean, this is not a sole proprietorship. I mean, if you are engaged in teaching and learning and writing and research, it is really incumbent to be able to have a group of support. And for me, I had really powerful mentors that um, both encouraged me and and they and and, and enabled me to um, to pursue academia to validate my ideas and, and the like. And Dan Sheen's um, in anthropology and William Little in African American studies were just really um, just instrumental in terms of encouraging me to pursue academia. I mean, and I should say, you know, in high school it was rough for me. I was in special ed. I have dyslexia. So it just, I, they would put me in these bad classes. They just said I was dumb. And so I didn't have con, but I had good ideas, <laughs> but I didn't know how to write really well. And um I was just challenged. And um so having that encouragement that says, you know, you've got some ideas, you just need some theory to back it up or some good history to frame it. And they were great. And I, I really, Give them both a lot of credit in terms of encouraging me to pursue academia as a profession
1: mm-hmm. yeah wow that really speaks to the importance of mentors and people like believing in other people um you know to really like lift other people up and help people kind of develop on a you know to follow what you know what it is that they want to do um and so my next question is about um, about the book from Savage to Negro. And so the book, you know, it charts this trajectory of anthropologists and the public and you know understandings of race and the book is of course about the past it's from 1896 to 1954 as it says in the title and so as i was thinking about this question i thought like many students are exposed to anthropology through either cultural anthropology and ethnography or or archaeology um but you decided to focus on the history of the discipline and so how did from savage to negro come about and you know why why this book
0: um How did Savage Negro come about? That's a there's a, a number of um, aspects to that question I'd like to talk about. But I guess one was I essentially did a senior thesis um, at Portland State, and I went back to the Aboriginal community and thought that okay, I'm going to do PhD. I'm going to actually do an ethnography about the this cultural negotiation, this brokering these um, Sort of middle class professionals in the NGOs and in the government work with the more traditional Aboriginals in the missions. I thought that would be a great PhD program. So if you think about it, it was from high school from from my senior year to high school to my senior year in in college, and all of my peers were going through the same thing. They went from high school to college. And when I came back four years later, three and a half years later, they were writing fiction. They were doing radio. They were doing um, movies and scripts. They were running for office, you know, at 23. They were getting these. And they just blew me away. And and so and I was busy just going to college and coming back saying, oh, I'm going to come back and like help you guys. And they were like, yeah, we'll help you. But, you know, (laughs) we're rocking and rolling. And at that time, I was like, wow. I did get one article out of it, but they were like, let me go talk to my grandma. Like, we, they hooked me up. Like, I was, I, I did a great ethnography that, that about six months, but it wasn't, it was just because they were trying to help me out. That was it. Then they're like, we can do this for you. And I was like, that seems kind of extractive. And so then when I go to, um, um, and at the same time, um, as an, at Portland State, I was very um, frustrated that the anthropology professors and the um, African American studies professors, they kind of knew each other, but they didn't talk to each other. And I kept saying, Hey, the Harlem Renaissance people in anthropology. And um, I was like, Hey, Harlem Renaissance people, Boaz over here. And they were like, Oh, that's that's cool. We should do some research. And this was before the internet, right? We had to go get microfish. <laughs> and um I found, you know, some letters from between Boaz and Zora Neil Hurston, and I was all excited. And anyway, so that that was kind of where and I wrote one page per as an undergrad. And that's where the sort of seed started. I was like, we need a book that brings these things together. And so once I kind of came to the conclusion that I really didn't want to do ethnography because I didn't have much to offer, you know, my people, because they were just doing so much and they were being so fabulous. Um, I rolled the dice and Tom Patterson, my dissertation advisor, says you probably won't get a job, but, you know, this is really important research. And um, even George Stocking told me that, th- that you really shouldn't do this for a dissertation because you kind of have to do ethnography to get a job. Um, I'm a historian and I teach in an anthropology department, but most anthropologists, I was like, but I knew that I wasn't going to do ethnography, at least not with the, you know, in broom, and but then there was nothing else. I kind of like, and I don't mind other people doing ethnographies. I could never just wrap my head around the relationship that you're kind of taking something and advancing your career. Now I read ethnographies all the time, so it's more just a personal kind of headspace that just for me, I don't do ethnography. <laughs> um, so. Then I kind of rolled the dice. I said, this book really needs to be written. And so the other kind of dice roll I did is that I wrote it for like undergraduates. I mean, I didn't write it for the historians of anthropology. I said, I'm just, you know, it's kind of, I mean, in that sense, I was a bit of an entrepreneur, you know, it kind of designed it. Like there's a need here. How might we bring together anthropology and Black studies in the the history between this really important um, time period between Plessy and Brown. And to me, that was so important. I was reading Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolution, Howard Wynette's, you know, um, racial conditions. And we knew that race changes over time, but that 58 year period, it changed quickly maybe not so quickly, but the structure changed quickly and the laws changed. And that was when anthropology was at its peak and really powerful and the Boazian turn, if you will. And so to me, capturing that moment between 1896 and 1954 and investigating anthropology's role in that shift was super, super important. And, um, yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> and was like, you're not going to get a job. I was like, well, let's just see. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. That's, that's amazing.
1: Um, and I liked how you said that anthropology and black studies weren't really talking um, when you were an undergrad at your, at your particular institution. I think that's pretty common. I was fortunate enough to have Uh, where I went to college, anthropologists were pretty central to African American studies. So I always thought that anthropology and African American studies were relatively linked. And I found that to to not be the case then after, after I left. (laughs) (laughs) But then um, I also like, came to your book when I was an undergrad. Um, and I think that possibly that's one of the reasons that I did because um, because I had professors who were also kind of thinking about that. And I went to co- college from 99 to 2003. So, um, so I would have been there as it just kind of came out. Um, oh, right. And so I had uh, professors uh, like Wendy Marshall who was like telling us about race and anthropology and she was very interested in these histories as well. So remind me where you went to college again. I went to University of Virginia.
0: Oh, right. Right. Yeah. yeah. With and Richard I, Handler, who has also been a big mentor of mine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Richard Handler taught racism, nationalism and multiculturalism um, at UVA. So, yeah, he was a very central figure in the department as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But I, but I say that too, because you wrote it for undergrads. And so I was one of the beneficiaries of that when I was an undergraduate student. Um, so thank you. Um, so as I was preparing for this conversation, I reread the book and, um, and I started to think about the book as being about power. And I, I kind of noticed more, like people were trying to advance the discipline or the field of study, um, of anthropology by kind of solidifying their place within it by running departments, like taking kind of control of journals, trying to diminish the influence of others. Like you mentioned, Boaz was censored at one of the conferences. Um, and so, this is maybe more of an observation, but I wondered if you thought about that as you were either writing the book or reflecting on the book how it's about power in shaping the discipline of anthropology.
0: Um, yeah, in, in so many respects, it was about power, but I also, uh, it was about the, the tenor of the times as well. I don't know. So there was definitely struggles um, for power and control over um, journals and the infrastructure of anthropology, which was put in place when anthropology was a reliable narrator for white supremacy, then once anthropology became an unreliable narrator for white supremacy, that's when the tensions came. And that's when, you know, Boaz pushes and pushes his students into these um, prestigious schools and departments. And then they take over the infrastructure of the AAA, the, um, the journals, Journal of American Folklore, AA, AES. And all the journals we still write in today, I mean, it's so eerie that it's the same infrastructure um, in place then as it is now. Um, But, yeah, there was quite a bit of pushback, not only in the the 20s and 30s, but then again in the 40s and 50s, going right up until um, Brown when Boaz was sort of long gone and dead. But they keep resurrecting Boaz um, as the specter that, you know, challenged had science challenge the previous science of inferiority and social darwinism so in that sense it was not just a scientific revolution but a transformation of race based on popular culture public policy and the law so they all shift in lockstep and i think that's important and that was what i was also trying to do was like say you know Science and society, you cannot pull them apart. They roll all together in really kind of compelling and important ways. So while there was power struggles, I, I kind of was arguing that anthropology was part of a larger pendulum swing from separate but equal Jim Crow to desegregation um, and Brown versus Board of Education. What we also know, though, with uh, every movement, and that's maybe I didn't quite understand it when I wrote wrote it, it's like there is always a backlash. And I end in 1954, but don't necessarily focus on the, the civil rights movement and the backlash of Little Rock and all the science. I mean, I pick it up in my next book, but that where anthropology comes like under siege by... The right-wing scientist like Carlton Putnam and the like. I mean, it was that was pretty good. And that's where people like Margaret Mead really step up and both politically ensure that the AAA has these statements on race, but then goes beyond and gets the AAAs, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, to come out with these statements of race too, which was political. She had to organize, but that then enabled the SNCC, SLC, Martin Luther King to be able to focus on the laws and desegregation and the vote and like, because no one could say, well, the scientists say Negroes are inferior. That was on lockdown, but that was a fight, which I did not cover there. So, and then, you know, we have Obama and then we had Trump. I mean, the backlashes can be just as devastating as, um, movement forward Mm
1: -hmm. yeah no that's really fascinating um and so you kind of talked about this um already but i'm kind of turning it back to you i guess and how you see your role in the discipline so as you just said and you've also said this before um you so you don't do ethnography and so i wondered how you see your place either as yourself as an individual or the place of your book um, in the
0: discipline of anthropology Um, well, I kind of see myself as an anthropologist of anthropology. (laughs) Um, and hopefully, so hopefully in this book, in my other books, I believe in anthropology. I am not ready to let it burn quite yet. Um, I think there's some redemptive things. And I think the ABA, I think black anthropologists are saving anthropology more than anything else. But I think it's important to understand the relationships that these scholars had with um, the Civil Rights Movement or the early Civil Rights Movement and um, how that worked out. And I think even though, you know, we see Zora Neale Hurston not being well integrated within the Department of Anthropology at Columbia, there were people like Arthur Fawcett, Carter G. Woodson, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, a lot of connections between the New Negro Movement and anthropology at the the time. And each kind of leaned on each other in sort of interesting ways. Um, Talk about that in the the second book, though, that it's kind of ironic that anthropology was studying Native Americans. Native Americans did not want them studying them nor their culture. They didn't think they need it. But anthropologists didn't want to study African-American culture, but they were like, no, no, please study us because if you say we have a legitimate culture, then it's not seen as pathological. It gives us more legitimacy we can have. And so there's just this irony, right, that all the anthropologists were focused on the Native Americans and the Native Americans didn't really appreciate it as much. And the anthropologists, I mean, the African-American um, new Negro intellectuals were like, hey, no, no, no. Except Ephraim Fraser of course, but that's a whole other story. But they were like, we want the analysis and the celebration of our folklore and our culture because that gives us legitimacy. Mm-hmm. It's not broken. It's whole. And so Herskovitz, you know, plays a huge role in that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I and mean,
0: the whole diaspora and all that sort of stuff I think it was was important so for me the underscoring those relationships and 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 how anthropology was a kind of a player back in the day um I think is important for us to to recognize it wasn't all as bad as a lot of us at least in the United States I haven't really looked abroad um as a lot of people make it out to be
1: hmm no, that's really fascinating. And thank you for that. I, I was reading a book um, by Jennifer Freeman Marshall called Ain't I an Anthropologist? And she's looking at Zorniel Hurston and how she's being taken up um in academia. And um and she talks about how Carter G. Woodson like was a big supporter of hers and wrote like he reviewed her books and things like that in journals and 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 yeah, so. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting to me to mm-hmm. think about those those relationships. And and this kind of kind of goes into the next question in asking you about your work on documentaries. And so I've seen you on Race, the Power of an Illusion, um, which I showed in my anthropology class last year. And then of course, most recently, you were on Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space in that documentary, which was um, directed by uh, Tracy Strain for PBS. And, um, And so I wondered how you got into being a commentator for documentaries. And if you can say anything about the experience of doing this work, like how you prepare for it, or the experience of like actually being on set as a commentator
0: yeah I think. well i think what i got how i got into it was um tracy heather strain did race the power of the illusion so we there was like 20 years between the two of us so when she was called me yeah, up we we both met with like we're both a little grayer a little because <laughs> we were like kids when we did the the first one um, and then her, her career went off, and I, and I did. So she called me back. But I was I've been on some other ones. I was on the Herskovitz one. Um, I've done some stuff with the NAACP and the like. Um, I I often like do- documentaries, kind of like th- this too, is because. You know, they, you, you talk for two hours and just ramble as much as you can. And then they, you know, real experts will cut out the little sound bites and put them together in sort of interesting ways. And they make you sound a lot more smarter than you actually are. <laughs> um, and, you know, that said, I also believe, you know, deeply that it is incumbent upon academics to make their work accessible, to do your work in multiple registers and different genres and the like. And so it's been a privilege, you know, I don't do it a whole lot, but um, it's been a privilege to be able to work with really dedicated um, teams of directors and sound people. I mean, you, you, you don't get, you don't get a a sense of the, the production of it. I mean, there's really a lot that goes on to it and it's kind of fun to be sort of part of that, that team in terms of preparation, um, you know, rereading things, you know, I, oftentimes I wish I have like cue cards, like just tell me what I should say. (laughs) Um, I, uh, before the Zora Dale Hurston um, piece, I I, um, I I podcast, I listened to um, Valerie Boyd's Wrapped in Rainbows, which is great biography. And I learned so much. And so just to kind of put me in that headspace a whole, you know, like two days before, I just like wherever I was, like when I was on the plane, I walked around Boston, um, just kind of immersing myself in her prose and kind of also then helping me get those dates a little bit more pinned down, you know, when exactly the relationship between mules and men and their eyes were watching God. I kind of had to re- relearn that because it wasn't top of mind. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I did it. I mean, a real salute to Valley boring And we were all so heartbroken that she couldn't be in the film. Right. But we all pulled from that biography and so many Um, sort of compelling ways.
1: So they don't tell you exactly what to say. Do they just kind of prompt you and say? Oh, um, so,
0: I mean, they gave me like, 70 questions or something. I was like, I am, I don't know all this. They're like, oh, okay, just pick out the ones you want. Let us know the ones you want. I mean, some like in the weeds, like I can't remember all of them, but they're like, and what year did the play she wrote for this get published, you know, presented in Ohio when, I was like, I don't know. (laughs) So, um But what was good about that is, you know, Heather was all apologetic when we shot. She says, you know, we only have an hour and, you know, we probably won't get to this anthropology, even though in folklore, even though it's so important, we're going to get as much as we can in, but I'm just letting you know ahead of time, it's just going to be rough. And then American Experience says, we're going to go from one hour to two. Mm-hmm. And Heather was like, we got a theme now. <laughs> and she didn't have enough time. I really respect documentary film because they're on a budget, they're on a schedule, particularly if it's going to air. Like they had, they, were, they I mean, it, like when you write a book, you're like, is it going to be this year or is it going to be next year? I mean, it was like, it's airing. So you, we got to get this done at this particular time. So they didn't have time to fly us back out there for re-interviews. They just had to get the stuff that they cut back on the, you know, back into the the video. So it ended up being, uh, I think, a real blessing. And I'm glad that the anthropological theme, sort of Irma and I pulled, hopefully kind of pulled through, became an important sort of component of that documentary.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought I, I watched it twice. Um, so far, I'll probably watch it again. And I really liked the documentary. And I thought that the anthropology was like front and center in the documentary. And so that's interesting when you say that it possibly wasn't going to be there. So um, or wasn't going to be as strong of a, of a theme. Right. And so yeah, um, I really, I really enjoyed it. And I, I would you know, teach it in my classes, and I loved how they had her actual footage that she shot, um, and you could hear her voice. It was just, it was just fantastic. Um, and I guess that, you know, again, like the next question is about the again the Zorniel Hurston claiming a space documentary because, and I'm going to ask you about, I guess, what you think about her place in anthropology because one of the commentators in the documentary said that she thought that her, that anthropologists should be disinvited from claiming Hurston. And as you watch the documentary, it becomes clear why she would say that because, you know, she really had these, you know, very, these struggles in anthropology and in particular, the documentary focuses on when Boaz and Ruth Benedict like wrote about her in their, in their recommendation letters for her Guggenheim application. And they said like, Kind of like she may not be the right person, um, and you just kind of see this lack of support. And so I wondered, and so for me, I would of course not want to be disinvited from claiming Hurston. I would always claim her. But I wondered what you thought about her place in anthropology, and if you if you also have any other thoughts about the documentary in general.
0: Yeah, um, I think we need to claim Zora. I think. Um, Brendan Tyne and Zora's daughters are doing a great job with that. And it is correct that both Ruth Benedict and Franz Boas wrote really damning letters for her Guggenheim. They weren't just lukewarm, they were kind of like, she is not acceptable or she's not. I think Boas Bo- Bo- says she's not Guggenheim material or something. It was bad. Um, <clears throat> um, that said, though, I. You know how does Clifford Geertz get to be pegged with thick description? Like Zora was doing thick description when Geertz was like a baby, right? <laughs> um, and that sort of affective turn, the blurring of sort of fiction, reflexivity, your pos- inter- your positionality with your informants, all of that stuff that is kind of now foundational kind of post writing culture moment in anthropology, the sort of self-reflexive, like, is this objective science, you know, questioning that whole gambit is Zora Neale-Harson was kind of like ahead of her time in really compelling ways. And in that respect, I think not that we claim her, it was that she was more than a pioneer. She sort of prompted another sort of um, scientific revolution or a revolution from science to more of a interpretive social science, right? I don't think none of us really believe culture anthropology is a science in the way that Boaz and Ruth Benedict did, right? But it was Zora Neale Hurston that enabled us to learn from Joe Clark's porch and joe stark's porch like blurring the just the the fiction and the stories and the evidence and the science i mean yeah mm-hmm. i mean yeah i mean it's 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 zora was complicated but it she was ahead of her time
1: yeah i th- i think her her complications come out too and the um in the in the documentary but and there's going to be and there's more work coming out about her too it's really exciting i like um and as you said the zords daughters i think they do a great job um you know kind of reclaiming her and making her like a, a again bringing her visibility to anthropology um so yeah i i really am liking this returning to to zora Neale hurston um And so I wanted to ask you about these different leadership roles that you've had in both anthropology and in the university. And so, um, so you were, I am probably not going to get all of your leadership roles, but of what I've looked up. So you, you were the president of the association of black anthropologists, which I got to see like, um, you know, as a firsthand witness, I guess. Um, and then you were also the Dean of academic affairs at Duke, Uh, You were the chair of the Department of Cultural Anthropology at Duke, and then you've also held different positions in the AAA. So you were on the AAA Committee of the Future of Print and Electronic Publications, and you were on the executive board. And so I wondered um, how and why did you move into these forms of leadership, and if you have any ideas about makes a a good or effective administrator?
0: Um. Yeah. I think, um, and I'm currently the treasurer of the AAA. Like how, I just get dragged, people ask me and I say, yes, I think that's basically it. <laughs> um, what I didn't know, again, remember I had, I said I had a wonderful mentor um, named Bill Little in, in um, William A. Little um, as an undergrad, and he was always doing teaching, research and service and like equal measure and um, was always running for something and was involved in this and involved in that, was involved in the community. So, and then, and then when I went to um, grad school at Temple, Tom Patterson was my sort of mentor then, and he was always running for something, or involved in this, or putting together that, or, you know, becoming the, you know, working on the AAA here, editing that journal. So then when I became a professor, I, I just thought that's what you do. Like no one told me, no, protect yourself until you get tenure or (laughs) don't do the AAA stuff because it's a waste of your time and you got to get the book, you know, the second book out. And um, even my dean at the time, um, when I was associate professor, the dean of social sciences, brought me in her office and said, Lee, you have been... Long in term, she said, because I was an associate professor for ten years, and I was just having a blast. I was running study abroad programs. I, you know, we we brought um, conferences. You know, we brought the AES. The um, I was president of SANA at the time, the Society for the Anthropology of North America, and Jeff Muscosi was, I think, the treasurer. Anyway, we were like kids almost at the time. We brought the. Um, the Conference de Merida, Mexico. So we had the conferences in Mexico. We were, I mean, and I was just having so much, not fun, but yeah, fun, like engaging and building and supporting and leading. And, but what I didn't also know is all of the work that I was doing for the AAA, um, as well as some committee work at, at Duke, was giving me the tools to actually be a pretty effective dean, like in terms of bureaucracy, in terms of budgets, in terms of money, in terms of making fast decisions. And one of the best things is knowing the difference between urgent and important. (laughs) And just, you know, kind of little tricks and trade, um, tricks of the trade and the like. And I just always kind of thought that as a scholar, I have found it hard to kind of refuse, and, and and for me personally, I've kind of refused to choose between teaching, research, and and like leadership, and I've been pulled into leadership a little bit more maybe than I've liked to. But I think there's also seasons in your life. So now I'm sort of pulling back, focusing more on my teaching and research, um, and the like. So I yeah, I don't know. I just think that. Um, and then Reagan, right, you know, I think you also know that being an academic not a lot of people can do it well and so if you do it well people keep asking you and you're like oh okay <laughs> yeah so- remember I, I did not run for aba president i was appointed because someone b- became a, a provost or something and couldn't do the job I mean, and bianca was like baker <laughs> we need you <ya." laughs> so again you know i'm happy to to sort of serve
1: yeah. Thank you so much for for your service. And someone recently just told me that they said, if you're a competent person and have a good personality, people will keep asking you to, to do things. Um, they were saying this to me and I was like, oh, okay. Um, I, so it sounds like what you're, you know, kind of what you're part of what you're saying as well is, and then if you're you know, you're good at what you do, then people will keep asking you as well. So it's a testament to your, to your skill and all of the energy that you bring to these positions. Um, So thank you so much for all of that work and what you will continue to do. Um, And so this kind of goes off of that, the question I just asked you too, which was, Um, I've heard you and I've heard other people talk about an ethic of care when it comes to mentoring, teaching and advising. And I've only heard this in like certain areas of academia, mainly in the Association of Black Anthropologists. And so I wondered, um, you know, I think this is really important. And I wondered um, what that means to you.
0: Yeah. Um, And that's the other piece of that is why I do administration too. I think what people think administration is about power, you have no power and there's not that much more money, maybe a little bit more money than being a dean or whatever. But, um, and, and you get into it so that your peers and your colleagues can do their best work, right? So you're doing administration or you're balancing the budgets of the AAA, whatever, so that, your colleagues and peers and students can do their best work. And then doing that, if that is your goal, then you are put here. And my respect is not necessarily to write another book, but to enable, uplift, and support other people writing their books. And so it's sort of this ethic of care. It's sort of like I see myself in... The role of teacher and mentor as a way of supporting others to sort of do their best work and i don't know how to explain it better than that but it's it, so many times in academia there's competition or jealousy or people that um are self-centered or not very self-aware and again, being department chair, being, do you see this more than you should? Because <laughs> you, um, you see the tails, you know, see the really good stuff and the real pathological stuff and you forget there's a lot in the middle. Um, but unlike history or psychology or sociology, anthropology is small. And we cannot afford we can't afford to lose one of you all. <laughs> you know, like we can leave no child behind. Um, <laughs> um, and that we have to double down and really make sure to do the work and uplift folks throughout their career. Um in important ways and that comes in little ways it comes in big ways it comes in what i've been doing a lot of these days is um sort of tenure and promotion files which is hard work but it's also important but it's also talk about invisible labor it's like confidential labor like you can't say to anyone oh i just did her file or his file um but it is really important work. So the other piece of that is doing the um, grant, a, a, you know, grant grading. I don't know what, being a panelist on for the winner grant or NSF where you're selecting grantees, a ton of work, confidential work. Because you can't say, come up, yeah, I read your file. It was great. And I was the one who put you over the top Like when, and, and winner grant. And it is that small. Like, it's like. I you know with another you know we've been able to pick people and push it through and then and then you have to tell people you know, now you got now you got to put the time in and do the work So Bianca now does it and a number of other people but it's it's uh, it's it's been a 25 year <laughs> journey um, that hopefully has enabled other people to do their best work. I mean what I'm so proud of, I have to say is not my books, but I've got a shelf. In my office with my students' books, and it's a it's a decent, I don't know, it's this big, and though some of them were undergrads, some of them were this. Um, one person was a novelist, and she's written some books and stuff. And um, but I'm 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 very proud of that uh, that um, like three qu- a quarter of a bookshelf. <laughs>
1: Wow, that's great. That's really great, and that speaks to the um, putting other people above yourself and that kind of generosity is, um, as you said, it's it's sometimes hard to come by. But it's good to know that there are people um, who are who who are there who who think about, you know, think about those kinds of things. Um, and so I have kind of like it's like a quote unquote fun question, I guess, and it's about if you could bring back someone from the past what would you ask that person and i put like if you could bring back either zora neale hurston um, what would you ask her or is there another figure that you would bring back and what would you ask them
0: i guess if i could bring back zora neale hurston i'd like to either drink some sweet tea or maybe um a cold beer on the porch and start asking her, like, what were you really thinking in terms of <laughs> being critical of Brown? Like, are you exactly was were you like re- like thinking that you should be more like the U- UNIA? Or no, I guess what I would ask her is like, what would what did you think about Marcus Garvey? Because I think she was like a closet Garveyite, or you know, a black nationalist, <laughs> and not. Along the same lines as Carter G. Woodson and some of the, or Ally Locke or, or whatever. Like, and did that sort of black nationalism come from like Eatonville, where she, did she just believe that black is beautiful? We don't need white folks, nor should we even strategize in terms of things like desegregation and the like. She called it though. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, once. Schools were desegregated. They resegregated with white teachers that didn't care for the students in the same way. Maybe, maybe she was prophetic. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. Um, but yeah, just just that last few years where Zora kind of her politics kind of went sideways from a lot of people's perspective. I was just like, well, what? What? Walk me through that because I like to practice radical empathy and to try to see where she was coming from would be compelling. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, So you end the book, uh, From Savage to Negro, with talking about colorblindness and researchers moving to talking about ethnicity rather than race. And so I wondered, um, where do you see anthropology today in relation to race? And um, you can answer this however you want to in relationship to research, scholarship, um, critiques, um, researchers, um, however you want to to frame that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did, that was so 90s, wasn't it? So no, um, I think, you know, your generation anthropologist, this whole notion of sort of global blackness, race as culture, culture as race, that race is an integral part of our identity and life is makes more sense to me. What I guess I also don't want to do is have race stand in for culture. I think mean, African American culture is rich. I think our folklore is rich. I don't think it's going away. I think hip hop, I think what I mean, we have a really distinctive culture. And what I don't want, I think it's unfair for people to eclipse culture with a kind of global blackness. And I probably would lose that argument with John Jackson and others, but nevertheless, it's something that I was trying to gesture, that I don't want culture to be eclipsed by sort of productions of race, if you will.
1: Okay, great. So thank you so much, um, Dr. Lee Baker. Um, I'm Reagan Gillum for the New Books and Anthropology podcast, and I've been talking to Dr. Lee Baker And um, you're an amazing person. And it's really been a privilege and an honor to talk with you. And it's been great to commemorate 25 years of um, From Savage to Negro. So thank you so much for sharing your experiences with us and your work.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. It has been 25 years and it's, it's, it's actually harrowing now. And maybe, I don't know if it's embarrassing, but for my students, I'd still assign it, you know, particularly some chapters, but... It's older than they are, and I think is that cringeworthy to teach a book that you know that was published before they were even born. Maybe, but um, like I said, I wrote it for undergraduates, and something like history re- kind of stays in time or, or whatever. But um, it is sort of humbling um, and and humbling, both humbling and sobering, I guess, to have a book that keeps being read and and useful. And, and it does keep circulating. And so I'm really um, proud and humbled by that. So thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you. It does stand the test of time because I've also taught the book in my, and I've recommended it to students as well. So um, I know that they definitely benefit from it. And many of my students are looking for something like it, right? They're, they're, they want these critiques and they want to have a deeper language and actual like empirical information so that they can, you know, levy the kind of arguments that they want to make. So your book has enabled them to do that, at least in my classroom and me and my students would thank you so much for that.
0: You're welcome. Thanks for doing this. And thanks so much for playing an important role in identifying, highlighting and uplifting um, black anthropologists on this podcast. I mean, I, I know you love doing it, but you're doing a real service of both vetting and validating um, our work. So I appreciate you doing that.
1: Thank you.